This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today is December 9th. It's a Monday. Uh, we're recording at the end of the market today. Before we get into some of the numbers, as per usual, I'd like to mention the fact uh, we'd be remiss not to talk about Paul Volcker, who died this weekend at 92. As many of us know, he was the Fed chairman under both the Carter and Reagan administrations. He's mostly known for really kind of combating um, you know, inflation, which at one point was above 14%. Uh, we had Fed fund rates uh, over 20% during his term. So he kind of was the catalyst of the Carter recession, but it was, in his belief, necessary to combat you know, prices that were that were way out of control. Uh, and at the time of his, you know, his uh, that he was in the Fed, uh, you know, you had almost half working population aged 35 and under who hadn't seen any kind of price stability. Grant, what do we make of his legacy and, and what is he leaving behind us? Really important legacy. Some of the stories that I saw come out was that he is extremely frugal really only buying drugstore cigars. And even when he was chairman of the Fed, he would live in an apartment building with George Washington University students and would take his laundry to his daughter's house out in Virginia because he wanted to avoid laundry costs. But I also think he stayed really involved in the U.S. economy. We saw that he was the chairman of President Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Board after the 2008 financial crisis and was really the strong force behind persuading lawmakers to impose stronger restrictions on big banks. And we still see that today with the rule named after him. Yeah, I mean, besides, you know, what a presence he was, you know, just in terms of in terms of good governance and everything, we should mention the guy was stood seven, six foot seven feet tall. Um, and he really continued to be a workhorse his entire life. Uh, you know, he wrote a book last year, he created a foundation in 2013, when he was, you know, 86 years old. So, you know, he was always kind of pushing for good governance and then um, stable fiscal and monetary policies. So he will certainly be missed um, as both a leadership role and as a consultative one. Uh, with that, let's kind of get into the market numbers today. So the Dow Jones was down 105.46 points, or it was down 0.38%, ending the day at 27,909.60. S&P 500 was down... 0.35%. Um, the VIX was up 16.5%. So that was ending the day at 15.86. We saw 10-year treasuries dip a little bit, 0.24% um, decline. So it ended the day yielding 1.819%. And we also saw um, you know, Brent crude weaken a little bit, uh, down 0.43%, ending the day at 64.11%. Uh, largely due to weak China export data. Um, so this has kind of ended a three-day winning streak uh, in the markets. Uh, on Friday, you know, the Dow had rallied as much as 300 points, and that was largely based on the non-farm uh, payroll growth numbers uh, for November that were released that we'll jump right into. So non-farm payroll surged by 266,000 jobs in November, so a lot of Economists at Dow Jones had predicted 187,000 jobs, so it greatly surpassed that 
We saw the unemployment rate drop down back to 3.5% from 3.6%. So we're once again matching the lowest jobless rate since 1969. Um, And yeah, and then underemployment, uh, those numbers were down as well too. Uh, Grant, do we have any more color to add in terms of what what happened and, and what these numbers are telling us? Definitely. Well, I think one of the big things is, is we saw the end of the GM strike, which had a big effect on the manufacturing jobs. So that added about a little over 41,000 jobs. Uh, we, but that wasn't the only sector we saw growth in. Healthcare continues to be strong, gro- growing, as well as the leisure and hospitality growing by about 45,000 jobs. So that just shows that overall, m- many sectors are still growing, which is really great for the American economy. Also, I think that just in, if we look at beyond November's numbers, we saw that there actually were revisions to the two previous months. So September actually went up by 13,000 jobs and October increased by 28,000. So just right there, we're, we're still still continuing to see growth in the U.S. job market. Yeah, I mean, I guess really the only two sectors that weren't very strong was uh, mining, which, of course, we've seen coal collapse over a number of years. So mining shed 7,000 positions. Um and and then retail was actually kind of tepid as well. It added just two thousand. Uh, we saw strong gains in motor vehicles, twenty two thousand jobs, and and parts dealers got eight thousand. But uh, a lot of those were offset by the loss in clothing and clothing accessories. Uh, Eighteen thousand jobs were shed in, in in that sub factor. So, I mean, and of course, with lower you know unemployment, we've also seen a kind of a lowering of jobless claims. Uh, do you have any numbers or insights on that, Grant? Yeah. So one of the big things is is that we saw employment gains slow a little bit um, as well, and that in part because of the the trade war there continuing. Um, we saw that economists polled that had forecast jobs increasing by two hundred and fifteen thousand last week, um, but still a little volatile there. Uh, initial claims dropped by 10,000 seasonally adjusted. So we're, we're, we're seeing that begin to decrease as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've had some volatility around holidays. I mean, we're in Thanksgiving, you know, day, and then we have, you know, Black Friday. Um, so, so it is, it is good to see, obviously, you know, unemployment uh, benefit claims going down as well, um, especially, especially outpacing, you know, what economists pull that, you know, Reuters were suggesting. And then we're also seeing that the average hourly earnings actually beat expectations, growing by about 3.1%. Um, so we're still seeing a little bit of increase in earnings, which is good going into the holiday season. Right. And if, if I'm not mistaken, I think the forecast number for that was three. So Correct. once again, kind of beating initial forecasts. Uh, one, one, one thing that has gone down is um, U.S. trade deficit dropped. Uh, but this was kind of in part by both, you know, we've both had imports and exports lower to just imports drop more. I mean, obviously, we're an import economy, so imports drop by 1.7% or, you know, um, ending at $254.3 billion, But exports also dipped 0.2%. Um, and, you know, a lot of that was driven by, you know, $800 million loss of goods, you know, from pharmaceuticals and automotive products. 
Yeah, the decline could still be signaling a weaker U.S. consumer compared to the the, the trade war with China. Uh, I think it was interesting that both imports and exports dropped by uh, small percentages, but still dropped. And that it wasn't just in, in one specific sector we saw across consumer staples, pharmaceuticals, and as well as uh, automobile products. Yep. And, uh, you know, we were talking quite a bit. In September, we saw, you know, a lot of spikes in terms of, you know, the repo market. Uh, so since then, you know, we, we, we mentioned the Fed was going to go through this, but they have, they uh, added $107.4 billion in temporary liquidity. Um, so, you know, they, they've really taken some actions. And we also saw, you know, a 14-day operation of uh, many billions too, a 28.7 billion uh, day repo operation. So, you know, what they're trying to do is uh, their interventions, um, you know, they want they want to secure liquidity, but at the same time, they want to keep an effective, you know, Fed funds rate of within the 1.5 to 1.75 range, which which they're currently at, right? Uh, so on Wednesday, at least it stood at, um, you know, around, around 1.55, so. Yeah, the the Fed is increasing the money supply by buying treasuries and, and mortgage securities. So they're really trying to continue to stimulate the economy and, and really help the market stay liquid. Since these interventions, we've seen that the money market rates have, have calmed down a little bit. Um, and then a, a big piece is that that you just mentioned is, is the main goal is to make sure that short-term borrowing rates are stable. Right, right. And, and I mean, and we saw that happen um few times in, in September, we saw uh, spikes, which is which has led to this intervention. So it's seems good that, you know, we've been able to stabilize and then um, perhaps that the central bank will be able to cut back on these repo imp- interventions by the start of the year. Uh, let's get into while we mentioned the jobs report was good. We often quote the ISM's manufacturing um, data, but they also do a service based one as well. So, you know, the Institute for Supply Management's non-manufacturing index fell to 53.9, which missed the mark of 54.5 that was conducted by uh, a slew of Bloomberg economists. Um, So this is actually the weakest reading of this business activity report since 2010. Now, just like the manufacturing index, 50 represents a contraction so we're certainly not there yet. Um, industries remain stable, but a notable drop nonetheless. Yeah, I think that this this underscores how big the service sector is in the U.S. economy and that it still makes up a lot of our economy. We are a, a service sector-driven economy, and so this really shows that we have a resilient force even after the record-long expansion, even as factories begin to falter. Yeah, I mean, we, we still had... Um, you know, we've had new orders for services grow at, you know, faster pace for, you know, the last couple of months. But but even still, this really kind of highlights, you know, just weaknesses we see, you know, whether it's be uh, global growth and, 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 and trade tensions that are weighing on our, our services across the board. Now, um, one thing we should note is that Right now, we're in a time of, of, of massive valuation. So we look at uh, a lot of them are talking about how expensive um, the markets are and uh, multiples are. But if we look at, so, I mean, whether the case of market cap, the GNP, which is, you know, Warren Buffett's favorite indicator, um, often 
often referred to as the Buffett indicator. I mean, the current reading's at 140%, so the analysis is this is very expensive. But when we look at some other metrics, right, like the Fed model, current reading's at negative uh, 68%, and a negative number represents it being inexpensive. So let's mention, and then you have price per earnings, which were, were slightly expensive, but not nearly as much as, you know, Schiller, which we often cite, or, or the Buffett indicator. Uh, what do we make of all these readings, Grant, and um, which ones to look to, and, and or should we just kind of look to them all in, in generalities? Well, the interesting part is that if you look uh, look across the board, you, you have some of them, as you mentioned, as the Fed model, which is showing an inexpensive analysis. But then if you go down to what we use here at Wellfest, the Tobin's Cube and the Schiller's Cape, those are both expensive. Uh, so I think that we're, we're seeing that a lot of based on the macro conditions right now with low interest rates, low inflation, and then the Fed Reserve on holds for right now that we're seeing higher than average multiples. And so based on that, I think that's why we're we're seeing a lot of these expensive analysis right now in the market. Uh, also, if we look at low bond yields, that means that usually equities are a little inexpensive. But since we've been on, as we mentioned, the longest and and greatest bull market that this actually may be not the best indicator to look at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and there's times where even like the most fundamental ones, right? Like a PE ratio, price fundamental, earnings are fundamental. But when we look at, I mean, they had historically low levels in, in, in 2010, 2011. But, you know, investors were still skittish because of 2008. So even on a fundamental factor, um, some of these valuation metrics don't really take into account our animal behavior and our animal instincts and are not always, you know, a good predictor of what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, but then I also think it's how you look at if you just take that earnings per share. So if you're bullish, then you're leaning to earnings per share being too high right now. And it actually doesn't affect, let's say, the ongoing trade war and tariffs. Whereas if you're more bullish on these, then you may say that uh, there's a likelihood of a phase one deal pending. So I think that's also why we're seeing a lot of these indicators showing different signals is because based on if you have a bearish or bullish outlook, it's going to drastically impact how you're forecasting these these factors. Yeah, we, we should mention, uh, you know, we've we've just we've spoken about oil markets um, recently. And we you know, we talked about the upcoming meetings in Vienna as something we were looking forward to a couple weeks back. Well, they had their OPEC had their meetings in Vienna. Uh, leading into the meetings, uh, the Russian Energy Minister Alexander Novak um, mentioned that OPEC and plus, you know, some of the ally countries that were there in Vienna, uh, they were discussing, you know, cuts of five hundred thousand barrels a day. Uh, at the end of the week, that's what they actually ended up agreeing on, and this will go through the first quarter of twenty twenty. Um, so that's kind of created some choppy oil trading uh in the interim period um but yeah so i mean they agree on big big output cuts and it seems that you know um there's some analysis that the saudis were even uh pushing for for larger cuts uh you know really they've been trying to offset um you know what happened in 2017 when we when the united states really kicked up shale oil production so they've tried to drive prices by by stopping some of their explorations and their drilling. Yeah, so we saw Iraq was also trying to push for 
for 4,000 barrels a day. So it looks like 24 countries in the OPEC have, have agreed to cut. But I also think since we're talking about Saudi Arabia, they're, they're definitely thinking about the IPO of Aramco because if they're able to have deeper cuts, then this will, will boost their, their public, market, uh, public market stock as they look to IPO later this week. Yeah, I mean, so we, we should kind of talk. Ramco is very interesting because it's, it's right now it's valued at larger than Alibaba. So it's the largest IPO valuation history. But at the same time, we're dealing with a company that is firmly, firmly has ties to the government and, you know, um, you know, the Bin Salman family, right? So, I mean, right now, the new Saudi uh, energy minister, Prince Abdul Aziz Bin Salman, that's, well, that's uh, MBS's half-brother. So you have this huge link between the Saudi family, the company of Aramco, and then also uh, Saudis in both of that family, of both, you know, government and and the, the energy sector. So, I mean, right now we're looking at uh, what's the valuation of $1.7 trillion. Now, the Crown Prince, Muhammad bin Salman, you know, also called MBS, uh, was kind of hoping to, you know, have a tri- uh, $2 trillion evaluations. Uh, I mean, what the, they're, they're, they're going to sell 3 billion uh, shares. It's going to represent, you know, just 1.5% stake in the company. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still, despite, you know, being under $2 trillion, it's still larger than the $25 billion IPO that uh, Alibaba pursued in, in 2014. It's interesting also because they're only listing on the local Saudi exchange and are not looking to, not yet anyways, looking to London, New York, or Hong Kong. I think it's also really interesting because you're having the Saudi government really push for the Saudi the Saudi uh, middle class investors to really be the proponents buying these. And we're seeing institutional investors outside the country saying it's too expensive and, and not really going to be involved in the IPO process. It will be an interesting one, as we previously discussed, because of the ties to the royal Saudi family. And then also we saw the the attack on their production. So investors may not think that it's actually uh, the the safest investment for right now. Yeah, this whole IPO has been offset by a lot of difficulties, right? Um, I mean, the original IPO date they wanted to be in 2018, but you had large issues with valuation and then also the venue of the exchange. So right now they're, you know, doing it out of their Saudi Arabia's uh, God, I mean, Tottawall, Scots Exchange, you know, however that's pronounced. But, uh, you know, they're still receptive of adding an exchange in New York or London. But right now, they're just doing a local exchange. Uh, I mean, the issue that Saudi Arabia has uh, is that it needs to use Amramco as a way to capitalize its broader economy because it really faces the fact that, as a lot of rich resource countries have, is falling into the, the Dutch disease, you know, issue, which is, one sector dominates the economy while all the other sectors decline. So they really, you know, right now they're trying to pay out an annual dividend of, you know, $75 billion to shareholders. Uh, no doubt trying to increase some consumer spending across other sectors. Uh, but they've also spent a ton of money advertising their tourism industry and also, uh, you know, big, big capital construction projects. So, I mean, this is, 
yeah, this is uh this is an IPO. It's it's tr- traded, but I mean, it's really by and large, a, you know, a product of the Saudi government. Um, and I think what they're really going to hope is that uh, it gets added on, you know, the MSCI um, Emerging Markets Index, and then that way um, there might be some more non-institutional investors and and people across, you know, U.S. and Europe more likely to trade in uh, these kind of index funds as we've seen ETFs have exploded. So if they can get on some of those uh, exchanges, that'd be good. Yeah, the you're seeing that the Saudi government is trying to regulate free markets, right? Because they wanted a 1.7 trillion or actually 2 trillion uh, valuation, but they settled for 1.7. But we've seen a lot of research come out from the Bernstein research that they actually valued it about 1.2 trillion. So it's it's already significantly overvalued and not going to be on on the three large one of the three largest exchange. So we'll see how that impacts. I, I think you made a great point that if it if it is bought and packaged into an ETF, that could be significant growth for them moving forward. And it's not to say that, I mean, they might not do another offering, right? And this might just be testing the waters because uh, at one point they had planned to sell up to a 5% stake and then now they're only settling on one and a half. So if all goes well, we might see another offering, I'm thinking. Um, let's let's talk about what we've we've talked about the last couple months, but now it's it's finally kind of coming coming to a close, which is a British election, which will happen on December twelfth. Uh, so on Friday the thirteenth, or I think it's Friday the thirteenth. Maybe it's just the thirteenth. But yeah, Friday the 13th, Brits will wake up to, you know, what's called kind of a horrific choice in between the Labour and the Tories. Um, You know, Boris Johnson is pushing for a hard Brexit. That's why I think a lot of the polling shows that Tories are in a strong position, because after three years of this saga, you know, uh, voters really just want to close it. Uh, But at the same time, you know, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is running on, you know, rewriting the rules of the economy and is kind of uh, radical leftists in terms of at least, uh, you know, the, the, the UK. So uh, we're seeing in the UK, what we're seeing across a lot of the developed democracies is that there's a massive bifurcation in the middle. So the left parties have become increasingly more left uh, and, and along with socialist lines and the right parties have become increasingly nationalist. Um, what do you think, Grant? It's really interesting now that we've been talking about this for, what, two, two and a half years now that it's finally going to be voted on again to see if they're going to leave or, or not leave. Boris Johnson ditched the deal that Theresa May originally negotiated and pretty much struck a worse one, in my opinion, especially what's going to happen with Northern Ireland, because I think that that could be a, a huge if they withdraw, that could be a huge pain point for them moving forward, as it was uh, earlier in past history um, and then it'll be interesting to see what will if if they do exit what trade deals do they have who are the supporters of a no deal uh, what does that all look like we've seen a lot of companies begin to move to Paris and Dublin and other places in Germany to prepare for this but now it will might not make sense if they end up not leaving so it, it it's you know pretty interesting yeah so I mean Right now, I mean, you've got the choice between, you know, the Tories and, and then the Labor Party. They're definitely pulling the most, but 
Uh, I mean, right now you have kind of a push for the liberal Democrat. So if they get enough votes and prevent a majority either way, you might have some like semblance of reason because the liberal Democrats have kind of positioned themselves as the traditionally British. Look, we're, well, classically liberal, right, on economic issues. So more laissez-faire, but then also very liberal on social issues, uh, as opposed to, you know, the Labor Party, which is now, you know, talking about proposals of, you know, four-day work weeks with with the same amount of pay, um, you know, seizing 10% of large firms' equity. Uh, You know, the Labor Party is looking at uh, taking the British tax burden from one of the lowest in the G7 to one of the highest. Um, So, I mean, that, that, that obviously is upsetting, you know, British financiers and bankers. But then uh, you have Boris Johnson, who's really kind of, you know, he's, he's kind of a serial liar. And he's, you know, he's, uh, he's kind of an eclectic character, which is uh, represents uh, some, what some people consider, you know, the nastiest things in, in politics. So, so yeah, it will be interesting. Um, maybe I, I don't see how this. I think this should push us closer to a conclusion on the Brexit issue, uh, in any regards, um, if there is a clear mandate. So, assuming you know the Tories do very well, then 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 we have a clear mandate. But if uh, the Lib Democrats pick up you know some seats, then then maybe either party will have to kind of soften their rhetoric and their policy proposals. Uh, and lastly, kind of in terms of an international spectrum. Um, you know, Japan's had to start around the stimulus. So, uh, you know, Prime Minister Abe's cabinet, you know, approved the $120 billion stimulus program, um, which is Japan's largest in, in, in three years. Uh, there's largely this is due to a couple things. I mean, they had those horrible typhoons in October. Uh, so a lot of the money is going to go on, you know, rebuilding that infrastructure, but also, they, you know, had a, they created, they increased the national sales tax uh, from 10% to 8%. So as a result, you saw retail sales fall. Um, Grant, what do we think about, you know, Japan, uh, you know, really proactively creating a, a stimulus program at this time? It's smart. We saw that their exports have already been suffering this year because they have been influenced by the, the trade war between China and the U.S., uh, as you mentioned, that this package actually will will probably help stimulate a lot of the economy because we're seeing fifty billion go to help the reconstruction of infrastructure that the typhoon wiped out in October. But more importantly, it's also increasing spending in schools, so they're increasing their digital devices and also helping shoppers who who use credit cards and smart apps. So overall, it's trying to take a broad stroke at improving overall economies and, and increasing education, which in in my mind is a is a big important factor. Yeah, yeah. The uh, that reward system actually was wildly successful and a lot more popular than the government thought initially in terms of uh, helping out online shoppers, especially you know in light of the fact that they had to levy uh, you know a large larger national sales tax. Um, Japan, you know. Uh, like Europe, but even to even more to a pronounced extent, you know, you're really seeing the aging of a country. Um, it's not a country that is looking at immigration. Uh, you know, it's it's an island culture of thousands of years. So uh, if if you're not if if they're not having kids naturally and if they're not receptive to opening their country up to immigration, they really got to find ways to to maintain growth and at least stop the initial demographic uh, bleeding. That's inevitably going to happen to any country that gets that old. 
And I think the prime minister is doing what he what he can. He's increasing public spending. He's also looking at an aggressive monetary easing policy and overall structural change of their monetary policy. So I think he's pretty serious about this. Yeah. Yep. Um, and with that, like I'd like to, you know, as we always do, talk about you know, what's coming up and then what we're looking at. The big thing for me is next week the Fed meets, so we'll see if there's any changes. I believe, based on language from Jerome Powell, that everything will will stay the same. We'll continue to see if there's any increasing the monetary easing that they've that they've done to control the repo rate. But let's see if there's there's any other clues from from what we hear from them next week. Yeah, I, I'm really looking at, and I know these were talking points in today's podcast, but. Um, I mean, the big thing is, of course, Britain's elections will be, you know, talking about that uh, next week and the results of that, what it means for markets and what it means for, you know, European Union as a as a political and economic institution. Uh, then, of course, also looking at, you know, um, the Aramco IPO. Uh, it's going to be the largest of its kind, and it has massive, massive uh, ramifications um, you know, in terms of, of, of foreign markets, but also, you know, what we're looking at, the oil economy and, and how Saudi Arabia positions itself as um, a dominant force in, in you know, OPEC and, and, you know, with this IPO they're having. Um, and with that, I hope everyone has a great rest of your week and we'll talk to you next week. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.